Hi, this is Justin Guest. I'm a doctoral student here in the Department of Government at the LSE. With us today on our edition of The Hot Seat is Professor Sumantra Bose. He's Professor of International and Comparative Politics here in the Department of Government and the author of his a new book called Contested Lands to my right. Uh, well, let's get started. We're here today to talk about the ongoing conflict and chaos in Pakistan right now. And uh, first question, Professor Bose, history is said to repeat itself does the current situation in Pakistan remind you of any previous dilemma in national politics? Uh, not in Pakistan itself. Although Pakistan has faced you know, several catastrophes in its history, the most notably being the disintegration of Pakistan as a state in 1971 and the creation of Bangladesh out of eastern Pakistan. But there is another situation from about three decades ago that does remind me of the Pakistani situation currently. And that is the situation in Iran in 1978, uh, where the Shah of Iran had become about as unpopular personally as Musharraf has become right now. Well, do you see this as a sort of new Islamic revolution in Pakistan, similar to the type we saw in Iran? No, for two reasons. There is a parallel in terms of the unpopularity of the leadership and the semi-meltdown that's taking place in the country, but there are also two significant differences. Uh, first of all, Pakistan still has its army, which has uh, a certain cohesion to it, um, even today. So it's difficult to see Pakistan succumbing to any kind of radical Islamist challenged, challenges, except in a localized way, as long as the Pakistani army is still basically intact and more or less cohesive. The second difference, of course, is that uh, radical Islamism doesn't really command, even now, more than minority support within Pakistan. And its influence within Pakistan is geographically patchy. So there are two significant differences. Um, the Pakistan army is still around to fend off any radical Islamist challenge to the regime. And secondly, um, Islamism doesn't have the same kind of legitimacy and popularity in Pakistan today, uh, nowhere near the level of Iran in 1978-1979. Well, of course, the military in Pakistan has endured a few defeats lately uh, on the outskirts of the country. Do you see these, the political implications and security implications of their weakening in the country? Is this going to be a problem? Well, the Pakistan army is facing the challenge of guerrilla war on the peripheries of the country, uh, mainly in what's known as FATA, the federally administered tribal areas. And there, of course, the army is on the back foot. Uh, to use a cricketing metaphor. Um, and it's not uncommon in any guerrilla war for um, a regular army to suffer you know, tactical reverses at the hands of well-organized and ideologically motivated guerrilla foes. Um, but at the same time, you know, that's not a challenge to the army beyond uh, a certain level. Uh, so I, I wouldn't exaggerate um, the problem that the Pakistan army is facing. Um, then, of course, there's the other law and order problem, 
which is the phenomenon of random suicide bombers roaming around uh, in urban areas and uh, blowing themselves up uh, in the center of major cities like Islamabad and Lahore. Uh, but I wouldn't exaggerate um, the, the strategic difficulty that the Pakistan army is in. Of course, this is still a very difficult situation for the Pakistan army. The Pakistan army is used to commanding a great deal of prestige in Pakistani society. Um, and for the Pakistan army to be attacked in this way uh, in certain parts of the country is in itself uh, demeaning to the prestige that the Pakistan army has commanded in society. Well, if the world were your Lego set and you could choose any first component of government or civil society to build to make the situation better, what would you construct to reestablish order in Pakistan, uh, you know, to set on a path towards a just and uh, fair society? Well, I think there needs to be a reasonably durable form of power sharing uh, between Pakistan's civilian political elites and its uh, military-led bureaucratic elite. Uh, of course, this was exactly what the United States was driving at uh, for much of 2007 when uh, it tried to get uh, a weakening, increasing, increasingly discredited Musharraf uh, to strike a pact uh, with Benazir Bhutto, the leader of the Pakistan People's Party. Um, and we know how tragically that effort uh, was aborted in the end. Um, but at the moment, um, the first step that really needs to be taken, if there is to be even a superficial normalization of the situation in Pakistan, is the removal of Musharraf from the post of president. Um, first of all, his legitimacy as president is dubious, to say the very least. But uh, his removal in the coming months is absolutely essential because Musharraf has put himself in a position where, like the Shah of Iran in 1978, he is tainted and compromised in the eyes of the vast majority of Pakistani society, ranging from urban liberals, you know, westernized secularists on the one hand, to religious fundamentalists on the other. Um, so. What I can say is the first step towards normalizing the situation in Pakistan is that Musharraf's institution, the army, and Musharraf's patrons, until now, the American administration, find a way of easing him out of uh, the presidency as soon as possible. So speaking of the United States, how should this conflict be viewed in relation to the West? Is this the building, is this building rejection of Musharraf? Is it a rebuke of his alliance with the United States and its European partners in the quote-unquote war on terror? Or is it a struggle for democracy in, in the model of the Western state itself? Are they looking for the Western state as a model here? Well, there's so many elements to the crisis in Pakistan, really. Um, of those elements, the one that interests um, the United States and the West more generally in the most immediate way is the war on terror. Um, especially on the Afghan-Pakistan border. Now, of course, the Afghan-Pakistan border is highly porous. Um, it's demarcated by something called the Durand Line, um, which was set up by the British in the late 19th century, but has never been recognized as a proper border 
by numerous inhabitants living on both sides in Pakistan and Afghanistan who are ethnic Pashtuns or Pathans. Um, of course, this is the area which is the epicenter of the war on terror. Um, so that is the element, the aspect of the crisis in Pakistan that uh, interests the West most immediately. Uh, but there are other elements. I've already referred to the untenability of Musharraf's position as president. Um, so the first step is the removal of Musharraf. Um, it is essential to remove Musharraf from the scene if the Pakistan army is to re-establish its credibility and its prestige, at least in part, which has been lost uh, under Musharraf in the past two or three years. And then comes the next step of working out a viable power-sharing arrangement between whoever succeeds Musharraf as the military leader of Pakistan and um, what's left of the Pakistani civilian political elite after Bhutto's assassination. Uh, of course, the major player in Pakistani civilian politics among the large political parties after Bhutto's demise uh, is uh, Mia Nawaz Sharif, uh, who was the prime minister who was deposed by Musharraf through his coup in October 1999. Now, Nawaz Sharif's pop popularity, the base of his party, which is known as the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, or PMLN, is concentrated in the Punjab, which is Pakistan's largest and most populous province, and contains about one half of its population and its electorate. So working out a power-sharing arrangement, which is viable and somewhat durable, between Musharraf's successor, and of course the new army chief is General Ashraf Kiani, who was appointed by Musharraf a few months ago, and between him uh, and the people around him in the upper echelons of the Pakistan military, and particularly, but not to the exclusion of others, but particularly Mia Nawaz Sharif, the second most popular politician in Pakistan uh, after Benazir Bhutto, and now certainly the most popular one, is crucial to making progress towards some normalization. But in terms of political opinion, would the scenario that you're suggesting be seen as a capitulation to the West? I think one of the problems that dogged the efforts to reach a pact between Musharraf and Benazir Bhutto during 2007 um, in terms of public opinion in Pakistan was that the whole effort was seen uh, as being masterminded by the American administration in Washington. Um, recall that when certain very radical Islamists uh, issued statements after Benazir's assassination, uh, they kind of crowed over how they had liquidated the West's darling and the Americans' best friend. Now that's a good example of how any attempt at uh, excessive American interference in Pakistan's affairs is likely to backfire. Um, there is a very widespread feeling in Pakistan that Pakistan's sovereignty and more metaphysically speaking, Pakistan's dignity as a nation is being infringed by constant American interference and diktats and that Musharraf has been reduced over the years to being a poodle and a lackey 
for American designs in the region. A lot of opinion surveys are repeatedly showing that uh, anti-American feelings are running very high in, in Pakistan. So I think it's time for the United States, while not giving up its emphasis on the war on terror, particularly in the tribal areas and in the areas of Afghanistan bordering uh, northwestern Pakistan, to take a step back and try and let Pakistan's civilian and military elites come to some kind of modus vivendi, more or less, on their own. And finally, does this continued postponement of elections favor Musharraf's consolidating or reconsolidating opposition, or is it actually favoring the president himself and perhaps delaying his departure? It's hard to give a direct answer to that one. Um, I think Musharraf's time is really up. Um, I would be very surprised if Musharraf lasts as president beyond the middle of 2008 uh, at the very most. Beyond that, it's hard to predict um, who the postponement of elections is benefiting, if anybody. Um, there is a lot of volatility in Pakistan's public opinion anyway, and Bhutto's assassination has further uh, muddied the picture. Um, I have a feeling that when elections are held, you know, which they will be, sometime in the coming months, uh, it will once again be a, uh, uh, be a case of the two major parties emerging with the largest number of seats. That is, Nawaz Sharif's party, the PMLN, PMLN, probably as the single largest party, given that it's popular in the Punjab, which contains half the electorate and the single largest number of seats of Pakistan's provinces. And with the PPP, uh, capitalizing on its base in Sindh, um, another province, though not as large a populace as, as the Punjab and some other parts of the country, and likely benefiting from some sympathy wave following the Benazir assassination in urban areas of the country, emerging as the second largest party. Um, I don't think that picture will really change, uh, regardless of how soon or how late, you know, within the limit of several months, elections are really held. And then, of course, the challenge will be to devise a power-sharing arrangement between Pakistan's civilian and military elites. A couple of minor points. Um, the Pakistani military, and especially its uh, covert operations arm, the Inter-Services Intelligence, the uh, ISI, um, has been known to rig elections in the past. Um, and even for the elections that were scheduled earlier this month, before being postponed by Benazir's assassination, uh, there were rumours that the ISI was up to its old tricks again, that it would engineer an outcome where the pro-Musharraf party, known as the King's Party, or maybe the General's Party, uh, the PMLQA, the PML Qaedias Azam, this is a pro-Musharraf party, which is on its last legs, along with Musharraf himself, that the ISI would engineer an outcome which would make this party the single largest party in the new parliament. So one can't rule out um, you know, certain elements in the deep recesses of the Pakistani military bureaucratic state engineering some sort of an outcome like that. Uh, and of course, uh, the PPP, uh, which stood to benefit a great deal from a sympathy wave following Benazir's assassination, 
has, I fear, shot itself in the foot uh, by anointing her, her teenaged son, um, who kind of uh, writes you know, very teenage things on Facebook, for example, as her political heir apparent. Um, I think it's a sign that the PPP doesn't have the maturity and sense of responsibility to deal with the situation of crisis. Um, and that uh, uh, otherwise, if it did have the maturity and the sense of responsibility, it would have appointed you know, one of Benazir's senior colleagues, maybe Aitiaz Hassan, a very well-respected PPP leader and a lawyer who's from the Punjab, the largest and single most populous province, as the leader of the PPP. Instead, it's gone for the dynastic route, which I think is going to hurt the PPP in the longer term. Well, thank you very much, Professor Bose. Uh, with us today was Professor Sumantra Bose. Uh, on the hot seat, he is now off, and uh, if you're interested more on these sorts of issues, you should certainly uh, pick up his book, Contested Lands. It is available now in India and various other countries around the world, I think about 30 now or something. He's done book signings, and I don't know. Um, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time on the hot seat.